We're going to go tonight to the book of Numbers, uh, the fourth chapter. And while you're turning there, let me say from the bottom of my heart how much I appreciate the kindness of this church. Um, as you know, sometimes um, it is, it's an uncomfortable feeling when you're standing up front and all of you precious people that work so hard and you're so faithful are pouring love and accolades and kindness on us. And uh, I kind of thrive in a different uh, kind of environment. I just love to be with you. I love to worship with you. And I feel, uh, I feel like we are blessed and we are appreciated so much. And I want you to know that that's reciprocated tonight. I am thankful that God led us to be here. I'm thankful for our family's opportunity. We appreciate the opportunity that God has given us to serve in Anderson, Indiana. And we are very, very blessed to be able to do that. Um, I have said all along that my primary goal in, in pastoring a church, whatever else we do, I have said that my number one goal is to pastor a church that my kids can go to heaven from. In other words, I want it to be the kind of church that when I'm gone, there's still something here, still something powerful, still something moving in this church. And if the Lord withholds his coming, and I hope he doesn't, but if the Lord withholds his coming, I believe that this church is going to survive for the years to come because you have a love for truth. And I thank the Lord for that. Amen. And I will clarify quickly when I said I said a moment ago, I said, when I'm gone, that doesn't mean I've got plans on going anywhere. I'm talking about when I'm gone out of here. Amen. We're going tonight uh, to the book of Numbers chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to save you a lot of the details. This, feels, this chapter feels a little bit uh, slow. If you read through your Bible every year and you get in the book of Numbers, right in this part right here, it's, it's a little bit slow moving. When you get into um, what all the priests are going to do, the Kohathites, and what all their obligations are, and who's supposed to get the badger skins, and who's supposed to get the blue, and yeah, it's, it's good, and there's stuff to it that it's, it's deep, it's there, but I want you to understand tonight, we're going to pull just from a small section of this, I'm not going to make you snore in Greek and dream in Hebrew, is that all right? So uh, we're going to Numbers chapter 4, Numbers chapter 4, and we're going to talk tonight uh, from verse number 15 to all of our guests that are here. We're blessed to have you and thankful that you would join us. Amen. We love you and appreciate you. To all of our guests that have joined us online tonight, we love you as well. And uh, some are are not feeling well this evening and we're praying that God would give you a speedy recovery and strengthen your body and get you back to the house of the Lord. How many of you know he's a healer tonight? Amen. Praise God. Verse 15 of chapter 4 of the book of Numbers. If you're there, say amen. And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary... As the camp is to set forward. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it. But they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. 
These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. So the previous 14 verses have said how they're going to do this, what they have to cover it with. They can't touch the holy things. It's got to be covered and all of that. And then I want to extract out of verse 16, if I could tonight, something that I believe can help somebody. And to the office of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest pertaineth the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily meat offering, and the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacle and of all that therein is in the sanctuary and in the vessels thereof. I'm going to preach to you tonight for just a few moments with the help of the Lord from this, this thought, this subject. I want to talk to you about the office of Eleazar. And you may be seated in Jesus' name. I am so grateful to be yoked up with this precious church. And week in and week out, there are people that work so hard and do things that you will never see uh, publicly. But they work so very hard. And um, one of the volunteers in this church that works so very hard uh, is Brother Haney, who is our Sunday school superintendent. And Brother Haney is celebrating his birthday this week brother 60 looks so good on you he's got a few years left what an inspiration brother Haney is to all of us and they work so very hard he's really not even close to 60 but um, he is doing a great work he and sister Haney are working with our young people and our teachers and boy what a great great calling that is, they're so, so willing to work, and we thank God for that. Amen. The office of Eleazar. Now, we could talk a lot. I could, I could do a, a long Bible study that, that would probably have you uh, raising your eyebrows for about 10 minutes and then maybe dropping your eyelids for the next 45, getting sleepy on me if I broke down all the things in numbers that's going on in this story, in this narrative right here, how this is happening. But I want you to understand that it was all very, very important as to how God laid out his plan. There were certain things in the kingdom of God that had to be accomplished. And it took certain men, certain families, certain people to do certain things. This is a beautiful type and shadow, if I had the time to break it all down of exactly what Paul was drawing out for us in the New Testament when he said, we are all members of one body. But he kind of breaks it down from an understanding that you may be the finger, uh, I may be the elbow, you may be the shoulder, but we're a body. And we all have a part. Now, I know that it's easy sometimes to get caught up in who is the face, who is the one that's out front, who is the one that's getting the glory, who is the one... That's being seen of everybody. But the body of Christ does not work if we don't all work together. Amen. Amen. You've got some folks that have a long heritage uh, in the church. And you've got some folks that they're first generation in the church. You have some folks that are married with families. And some folks that have never been married don't have a family. Some folks that have been married, been through some things, don't have anything. You are no less important in the body of Christ because of your status where you've been, what you've done. It doesn't matter if your father was a preacher or your father was a drunk. It's, it's irrelevant. When God puts his hand on you and fills you with the Holy Ghost, 
you become a valuable part of what God is doing. And one of the tricks that the enemy loves to use is to make you feel like that you don't have anything to offer because you're not that shining, glimmering so-and-so that has all of the big things to do. But can I tell you right now that I, I don't believe I don't believe all the things. I've heard people talk about uh, being anointed to scrub toilets. I don't believe you're anointed to scrub toilets. That's a holy thing. Uh, you're anointed. Is, that's a holy, separated thing. I don't believe you're anointed to scrub toilets. I believe that you're anointed to be a child of God that just so happens to be willing to scrub a toilet. Your ministry is not measured by the toilets. Your ministry is not measured by the mop bucket. Your ministry is not measured by the meals that you have prepared. Your ministry is measured by the fact that you are valuable to God and within you is the gift of the Holy Ghost that is the most precious and valuable gift that has ever dwelled in earthen vessels. I thank God tonight for people that are willing to get full of the Holy Ghost, to live right, to love God, be faithful to the house of God. Amen. I'm glad to be a part of the family. It'd be so awkward if we were all preachers and we were all teachers and we were all singers but we're not there's some of you that couldn't you couldn't sing if i paid you a hundred dollars to sing but that doesn't mean that he doesn't love to hear you sing some folk i'd give a hundred dollars not to not really i'm not giving you a hundred bucks The enemy wants to make you think because you're not the soloist that your voice is not a gift in the choir. But you do understand how awesome it is when that choir comes together because where two or three are gathered together, something begins to move and something begins to work. Hey man, I believe tonight, I believe tonight that not everybody is going to grab the microphone and sing the solo, but I'm thankful to be in the choir, to be in the body, to be a part of the family of God. I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. I've had men pour into my life that have never stood behind a pulpit and preached a sermon, but they taught me every week in Sunday school classes of four, five, and six kids when it wasn't like there were a lot of accolades and a lot of hand claps for what they were doing. But they made eternal investments in my life. I've had women that have never even had children of their own that have invested in me as the child of God and invested in my future. Can I tell you tonight, I am grateful. And no matter what the devil tells you, you are significant to God. You matter to God. You matter in the kingdom of God. Your status in heaven is not even compared to your status in the earth. Some would look at you and say they're poor. They have no money. They've got nothing to offer. But when heaven looks down at you, he says, oh, I see a song in them that is unique that nobody else can sing like they can sing and what you bring to God is what matters the most so we're all members of the body we all have a job to do but here is something that that Paul said that I feel like is certainly uh, alluded to in numbers the fourth chapter but the principle is very simply this. He said that when one member of the body suffers, that the whole body suffers. So 
I don't know how many of you have ever spent much time swinging a hammer. But if you don't think that a finger is important, it'll change your life. I was building a little barn for Sister Kate Walker one time. And I, uh, I needed a new hammer. My hammer was a mess. I need to get a new hammer. So I went, when I, I believe it was the same day that we ordered the lumber, I believe. And I bought me a, a 20 ounce waffle head framing hammer. And it was, it was just hot outside. It was just me and my dad. And uh, I started working on the bottom floor part and I reached over in kind of a weird way and I was just throwing a 16 penny nail into a corner to hold it when all of a sudden the end of my left index finger was met by the head of a brand new waffle head framing hammer and all of a sudden the rest of my body did not want to cooperate For about three seconds, I was like, I don't care if this thing ever gets finished. But then you work with people, like I wouldn't name anybody, but like Brother Sawyer and people like that. That when you get hurt, they say, put sawdust in it, keep going. Yeah. Slave drivers. But my point is very simply this. If you get up in the middle of the night. And you stub your toe on that table in the dark. Do you think that doesn't affect other parts of your body? I'll tell you the first thing it usually affects is the major opening in the cranium. And you say things that you probably need to repent for. It's amazing you paid good money for that table but now it's a stupid piece of junk. You understand what I'm saying? You stupid piece of junk. Like the table moved. Like the table did that. You understand what I'm saying? Nobody moved that table. You're lazy. Move your feet. And it affects the rest of the body. You hit one toe and your mouth opens up and says something. And you get tingles up and down your arm. And it feels like your your body's falling asleep. And you just go, oh my God, what am I going to do? What do you mean what are you going to do? You're going to put your shoes on tomorrow and you're going to walk. But momentarily, you feel like you you are absolutely impotent. And you're never going to survive. And you probably better go to the emergency room. Because you broke 14 metatarsals. And it's all said and done. And you're finished. truth I mean you're playing basketball and you you're jumping you know I remember I remember the day that I grabbed rim for the first time I felt like heaven had moved I was five foot three until I was 13 years old and then God blessed me and I went from five foot three to six foot in like the next year and I'll never forget the day that I dunked a basketball And I thought, oh, my word, I have finally arrived. I can do it. And then somebody throws a basketball and hits your pinky finger and jams your finger. And all of a sudden, your jumps don't matter anymore. It don't matter how good of a shooter you are. 
when you hurt one member of the body, the whole body suffers. I think, I think you know where I'm going now. I've kind of set it up there. You understand what I'm saying. But I want to tell you that the body of Christ is affected the very same way. When one member of the body suffers, and, 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 and there's something that I feel we could work on as the body of Christ uh, on a pretty general level. And that is some understanding that self-inflicted wounds hurt as badly as wounds from a brother. There are people that are going through hard times and that member of the body is suffering. And, and sometimes our only justice for them is we look at them and say, well, they made their bed, they're going to lay in it. They deserve whatever comes to them. But hear this preacher when I tell you tonight that when you're suffering, the whole body is suffering. And eventually, eventually, we're going to get through this thing and we're going to get over this and everything's going to get better. But I can't have you jumping off the boat because you've been broken and you've been hurt. What we need is somebody to say, I don't care what the devil told me. I matter to God and I matter to the kingdom of God. And I'm going to get back up again and I'm going to do something for God. Sometimes it is true that we quit and we walk away from our calling and from God, no matter how significant or insignificant it may seem to us or whatever, we walk away from it. And it's true that sometimes we do because of the way that others treat us. But can we deal with the, the true elephant in the room? And I want to tell you this, that others are not my biggest enemy. I am. Because the truth of the matter is what others say about me really can't affect me. I mean, it can hurt me a little bit. Can I take you to this preschool playground, sticks and stones? May break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, they do hurt, and, and, and that, that's absolutely fine for people. You know, it, it hurts. That's okay, but I want to tell you this. If you truly want to be reconciled and restored in the kingdom of God, there's not one thing that anybody in this church or anywhere else can say to you that can stop what God is doing in healing you. You've got to get a made-up mind that no matter what it costs me, I'm going to put my shoulder to the plow. I'm going to keep my head in the right place, and I'm going to let God restore me. The only thing that's going to stop God's restoring work in your life is when you draw your last breath on this earth. So until then, I feel like encouraging somebody tonight. Pick your head up, child of God. Keep on working. Keep on going. Let God heal you. This is kind of a sidetrack, but I was, I was reading today. I was reading today about Esau and how the scripture said that Esau wept bitter tears of repentance, so to speak, but he actually never found the place of repentance. You read that? It said Esau wept bitterly and never found a place of repentance, and that always bothered me. I was like, Lord, how is it that you can weep tears? Uh, of repentance but not find the place of repentance and three verses later it said that Esau hated Jacob and I said oh I just found the problem crying doesn't fix it it's something that God's got to work on in your heart it's something that God has got to turn around you have not repented of something because you wept bitter tears you've repented when your heart has shifted and you've turned in another direction I'm crying out tonight 
to some folks in the body of Christ that the enemy has told you nobody's going to notice if you go missing and nobody's going to notice if you don't do your part but when that part of the body suffers we all suffer we need you in the kingdom of God we need you and so we come to our text this evening the office of Eliezer and I'm going to deal with this for just a few moments if I can tonight I remember the first time that the Lord spoke to me about this passage of scripture I was a, a teenage preacher and uh, we were on the road my dad and I were going somewhere I don't remember where we were headed and I was sitting in the passenger seat he was driving and I remember coming across this passage and I began to study and read I don't know why this this story has stuck out to me but I always remembered the first time that God spoke to me about this passage about the office of Eliezer. Now when you read this, honestly, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. The office of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, pertained to the oil for the light, for the sweet incense, the daily meat offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of the tabernacle and all that therein is in the sanctuary and in the vessels thereof. Now that sounds like maybe it's got some clout to it, but it's just, you know, it's just oil. Somebody say it's just oil. So I remember Looking at this and studying about this in the scripture, I believe it's in Ecclesiastes, said that one fly in the oil of the apothecary will destroy, it destroys the, the entire batch, if I could say it like that, of oil. One fly that lands in the oil. What really was the office of Eliezer? What really was it that, that Eliezer had to do? How... In the world, was it a full-time job to take care of oil? Well, here comes the answer. And I'm so glad that you asked. And this is what God wants to speak to somebody in this house tonight. That the job of Eliezer was not being sure that the oil was applied to everything. His job was to be certain that there was oil left when it was time for the anointing to be supplied and put on everything. The job of Eliezer as a young man was to be sure that after the apothecary finished the work that nobody else knew how to do but the apothecary. It was a precious ointment that he had to bring together. It's no telling what it would cost in today's currency. If you tried to put together the oil of the apothecary now that they were talking about in the scripture, it was from special barks of trees and stacti and cinnamon and all kinds of precious gifts, some of which were even brought to the Messiah at his birth. Some very valuable ointments that you don't just walk into an essential oil a store and pick up. It was valuable oils. It was things that people had to harvest at certain times of the year even with frost on the ground and even when it was dark at night and there was nobody there. They had to go harvest it because there was only a small window but it was only one part and one portion of the greater anointing if you would. And so all of this comes together and the principle that Eliezer had to understand is that this oil is something that you did not invent. It's not something that you came up with. It's not something that you're invested in. It's not something that you created. But it is something that you need to protect. The oil is valuable. It affects everything else in the tabernacle. If the oil is wrong, if the anointing is wrong, then everything else in the tabernacle is wrong. So Eliezer 
I want you to understand, son. You may feel like you're insignificant and you may not feel like you've got anything to offer. But what I want you to do for the rest of your days until God gives you a different commission, I want you to stand by that oil every single day of your life. And whenever a fly comes, Pastor, I, I, I really think that God wants me to preach to thousands. I hope you get to, because everybody needs to feel that pressure once in your life. But you know what? I think that, I want to be very careful how I say this. But I'm afraid that what men have called anointed is not really necessarily what God says is anointed. Just because you can spit and say a couple things and shout and scream a little bit don't mean you're anointed. Woo! That went over like a lead balloon at a party. We look at men's lives and we think, mm, man, that guy's a preacher. What'd he say? I've been to, I've been to conferences and camp meetings and, and, and the guy gets done, people are dancing, shouting everywhere. And you leave and you ask one of the young people, what what'd he say? What, what was your favorite sermon, brother so-and-so? Oh, yeah, what'd he say? Well, his title was this. So what, what'd he preach? Man, I don't really remember, but it was awesome. So it moved your feet, but it didn't move your soul. And we look at the measure of a man and say he's anointed because he can make people dance and run and shout. But the true measure of a man is not just found... When you walk into the room and see anointing oil dripping off of everything. Oh my goodness, look at that. Look, Man, there's oil dripping off the altar. There's altar dripping off. There's, there's oil on everything. Everything in here is anointed. But what you need to understand is that in that tabernacle, everything that was affected by oil, it was able to happen because of one young man that was willing to stay the course. And while everybody else was outside the tabernacle and they were playing in the camp and hacky sacking and uh, playing basketball and doing whatever else, they're doing Eliezer standing in the tabernacle and every fly that comes along it not in my house it ain't gonna happen in this house because if I don't do my part then the anointing cannot rest on the entire tabernacle I feel like somebody needs to understand tonight that the anointing you're protecting in your life is not just for you we need the anointing in the church of the living God you to think about some things tonight church I'm going to slow down right here and talk to you for a minute but I want you to think about some things I want you to think about some of your worst nightmares that you've ever had about how how quickly a church can fall apart been doing this my whole life and I've seen it happen men that I held in high regard large churches large buildings and today, there's not one thing apostolic left in that building. Some of them put chains on their doors, close the building down. It doesn't even exist. Now, I know you don't think it can happen. But you just listen to this preacher when I tell you tonight, if we go to getting arrogant with God, don't you think there, don't, there can't be a sign in the front yard of this church? Just because we get to the point where we think God owes us a mighty move. 
And we're going to have good church whether the anointing falls or not. I'm not going to pastor that kind of a church. I'm not going to be a part of something that can dance for the sake of dancing and scream and shout for the sake of shouting. Oh, no, no. Listen, I thank God that our music has come a long ways since the 1920s and 1930s. And I thank God for that. I thank the Lord that we've got talented musicians and a bunch of them that are coming up. But you understand me when I tell you tonight that if all of that goes away, I'm going to talk to you right here, so just, just hang with me. It's, it's astounding to me in the modern church that the first thing people notice is how friendly we are, how together we are, how together our programs are, how good the music is, how much they enjoyed the body of Christ together, how much they enjoyed the church. But alcoholics are still leaving addicted to alcohol. Drug addicts come in. They leave still addicted. Well, pastor, it's just because the spirits of addiction are stronger today than they've ever been. Do you really believe that? I'm sorry. I, don't, I just don't believe that. I think there's different things. I, I mean, I, I feel like it's a, it's a different age. We're not just dealing anymore with weed tokers. I mean, let's be real. That's something that now... Several states are saying it's just medicinal. <laughs> I mean, used to, if you knew a guy that was smoking weed, man, he was kind of, that's a pretty bad dude right there, man. And now somebody says, I'm addicted. Well, what are you addicted to? I, man, I'm addicted to marijuana. Oh, thank God. That's all? <laughs> we can work on that. And, and it's like now, things that before my time and when I was a, a, a child, they were considered hard drugs. Heroines and, and things like that, they were, they were pretty hard drugs. Now, they just put it in pill forms. And the churches are saying, well, as long as you got a prescription for it, apparently you need it. Tied up in here right now. It amazes me. The place that we can get to of tolerance. In the kingdom of God. And I'm afraid sometimes it's because we're desperate for growth. At some point we're going to have to get back to preaching that God is either a deliverer or he's not. Because there was a time that if you needed an answer, you'd get it right here. But now you can get up in the morning and get it in your medicine cabinet. And it's 100% legit because the doctor said you needed it. It's tough times. You know, back in the 50s, when... Uh, Guys like Ray Charles and singers like that were getting addicted to heroin. Man, the preachers could preach that now. Shooting that stuff in your arm, you're going to go to hell. Well, now they just figured out a way to solidify it. Yeah. 
Stick it in your mouth. Swallow it down. And the chemical compound is exactly the same thing. But we look at this present world and we say, oh, the pressures are just so great. And I'm just so depressed. Church, I believe in depression. I believe that it's real. Trust me. You talk to any apostolic pastor that's worth his salt and he's been through some devastating and depressing times. Ministry can be a lonely place. I understand depression. But I know that when I go through seasons of depression, that doesn't mean I have to live depressed. I want to know tonight, what did the old church do when you couldn't go to the doctor because you had two or three restless nights? What did they do in old time Pentecost when you had what we call insomnia now? You didn't go get ambient. You went and got your Bible and you put it under you. Now, there's some that listen to this and say, oh, he's one of them anti-medicine preachers. No, I'm not. I think if you need medicine, you need to take medicine. That's what I believe. I believe that if I was sick and they had something that'd fix it, I'd, I'd get it. But I'm dealing with that spirit that carries it beyond that. They give you things that you may need today that you become addicted to in six months when the problem is no longer there. nobody tonight but I'm telling you the issue is that it was put up with for so long in congregations that now it's climbed onto platforms and you got you got preachers that get up and preach about the delivering power of Jesus and will go to their office after church because they had back surgery and four years later they're popping pills and you can't even talk to them if they're not in the pulpit because their speech is slurred Man, maybe I should preach something got y'all dancing, shouting. It affects the entire body. When we start allowing things to creep into the anointing, it affects everything in that tabernacle. Eliezer wasn't the one that put it on the furniture, but he was the one that made sure when they came to get it, there was something valuable to put there. Oh, God. I know I didn't miss the Holy Ghost tonight, so I'm going to keep pushing until this thing breaks. It amazes me how tolerant we've become. I I, I mentioned this this morning, but I'm going to bring it to you tonight in a little deeper measure. That there comes a time in your relationship with God that you actually just get used to a certain feeling. At one time, it would have worried you to death that you were having the thoughts that you're having. At one time it would have worried you and you would have went to a prayer call and said, Oh God, I want to be right with you, but now it's become a new normal. And things that the church used to preach against and say, It's sin, now it's just tolerated because we don't want the size of our choirs to go down. I wonder, 
I wonder how long it takes. Now, if you read the scripture, it says that when the fly lands in the oil, because the oil is holy, it's anointed, the apothecary did it. When the fly lands in there, you can't just scoop out the fly and throw it away and leave the oil. You have to start all over again. Oh boy, I'm fixing to get up on something right here. How does restoration look in the 21st century now? Let me tell you. We got a lot of people that are just grabbing flies and throwing it out and saying, ah, it ain't no big deal, it didn't stay long. And things that used to be sacred and holy, they're not sacred and holy anymore. Because it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter to everybody else if it stops mattering to you. It's got to become valuable in your life to where you say, Lord, I don't care if everybody else in the whole world backslides and everybody else quits preaching and everybody else quits teaching and everybody else quits preaching it. I've already made up in my mind I fell in love with this truth. And so then, oh God, let me, let me just work on my notes here for just a minute. So now, we're working in the ministry of recovery in something that could have been fixed in the ministry of prevention. This fly has no business in here, but my... My PlayStation is valuable to me right now. So I'm going to leave the oil by itself unprotected and unguarded so I can go over here and deal with what I'm dealing with. So my, my question that I started to ask a few moments ago is how long does it take for new normals to start feeling normal? How long does it take for a church to unravel and say what we used to preach against, now we just put up with. What we used to believe, whether we said it in this measure or not, was a heaven or hell issue. Now it's just become a matter of preference. I guess what I'm saying to you tonight is that if it doesn't start mattering to us in this generation to protect the anointing of Pentecost, I wonder what it's going to look like when my grandkids. I, I, I don't know who all's watching tonight, so I, I want to be careful. But I was having a conversation some time ago about some certain things that are going on in meetings and different things that are happening. And, and uh, I said, you, you know, I, I got a serious problem with this because now what we do is. There were people doing things that, Bishop, I considered they've always been a sin to us, to, to this church. But they, they were allowed to play on the platforms of conferences as long as they would stop doing that for the three days of the conference. <laughs> and, and now it's like we're playing patty cake with things that just, it, it just shouldn't be that way it's like now it's okay if it's your natural collar it's the same collar 
It don't matter anymore. And, and I've, I've watched, I've watched, oh God, please help me right now, Jesus. I've watched an aberration that has transpired in such a way that at one time, if an individual was doing that, we would look, whether right or wrong, we would look at them and say, boy, I think they're backslid. But now we go along with it and our entire platform does it. Not this platform. But the entire platform does it so that it feels normal. And I wonder how long it takes in a church before we start saying, you know what? I'm tired of the world setting trends for the church. I'm ready for the church to start setting trends. Ah. I think, I think maybe now, Bishop, your question has been answered. I was wrestling in my office with this before church. I was standing in my office. I said, God, this Sunday night, we're supposed to be coming out here dancing, shouting, having a good time. It's Sunday night. But this is what I want you to understand about this local church, and I can't speak about anybody else. I always want to be a dancing church. I always want to be a shouting church. I always want to be an aisle-running church. As long as I'm alive, I want us to roll in the floor. I want us to lose bobby pins. I, want, I love all of that, and I believe in that. But what I'm saying is that when the dust is settled after the dancing is over, I want there to be something of value to God that he looks at and said that's not just a dancing church that's an anointed church they have protected the sacred things of the kingdom of God so I'm going to be I'm just going to be real I'm not going to stay for a long time but I'm going to be really transparent with you there were people in movements through the years that Sister Darla they couldn't they couldn't get our power they weren't willing to pay the price for our power, so they just stole our music. And their preachers started preaching like our style of preachers. And it became a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. Oh, man. Y'all going to have to help me here in just a minute now. Because I feel like the shift that has happened is now... All of those groups that we used to look at and say, oh, man, stay away from them. They may sing our songs, but they're not us. Now we've started stealing their music. Lord have mercy. Used to, they didn't want to do the dress part that we do. Holiness is because they didn't want to be holy, but they wanted the power of it, you know. And we would look at them and say, ooh, stay away from them. They're a form of godliness, deny the power thereof. But now we've allowed that pendulum to swing. And now we've started imitating their ways and hoping that God will still honor us and make us people of power. But when you walk in this church and you feel what you feel, you don't just feel it because we have good music. You feel it because there's some things that have been protected in this body. There's some things that have been protected in the church of the living God that we cannot afford to allow flies 
to start landing in that oil or it affects the whole body. Those that are close to me that that spend time with me, that listen to me on a weekly basis, my poor wife and our poor our poor staff and young preachers that listen to me, I, listen, they can tell you this is not just something I've decided to preach on a Sunday night. This has been wearing my spirit out for months and even years right now. I'm wondering what in the world we're going to look like if at some point we don't hit the break. Listen. I, I believe, Bishop, if, if this was out, out there somewhere in left field, you can, you can help me with this when I'm done. But you and I have talked about this a lot. And what I'm afraid of in the mainstream that I see happening is not like now, if we'll just stop it where it is, it'll be all right. I really feel like we're at a place where we need to stop it and we need to reverse course. Don't run off and leave me right here because I'm a man that believes in forward vision. But I'm saying to you, there are some things that if we're not careful, we're going to absolutely leave behind because we're pursuing. Oh, God. How is it possible to forsake old landmarks and feel like we're somehow going to build a square structure. Woo. I feel like tonight that God is calling the true church back to a life of conviction. That's leading us to a place where honestly... If I could just say it as as simple as I know how, that the pressure of pleasing heaven is by far greater than the pressure of pleasing men. I don't even know how to preach this without sounding derogatory. Brother Brother Tony, you told me a few weeks ago in prayer, you walked up to me and you said, Pastor, I believe God is calling us back to some old things. Am I telling the truth? I, I, I don't know, I don't really know how to say, to say this without it sounding derogatory, but there's some things that I think old-fashioned is okay. I was having a conversation with another man of God this week about some situations and and. and what the, what the modern day marriage kind of looks like, and I, it's, it's wild. And I simply said to him, Brother, listen, the problem is not with these married people, the problem is what happens before they get married. They, 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 they've got flesh issues. And they think if they make it legal by getting married that all those problems go away. Well, I know the plow's deep tonight. And we think we're going to fix it with marital counseling. And we're not. 
We're going to fix it getting back to some old time things that if you really feel like you need to be married, then you better be sure you're married in the will of God. And if it ain't the will of God, you'd better be single and saved and married and lost. The, the picture of marriage in the New Testament church, it always comes to the bride of Christ. We're his bride. Bridegroom. Marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's why Jesus and his disciples that became apostles were so straight shooting with their ideas on marriage. It's because it's sacred to God. It's not a relief for your sexual problem. And so it moves us to a place where you start understanding, and I'm going to say this as gentleman as I can, but you start to realize that the reason in an apostolic culture kids really, really push to get married is because they're tired of repenting for the wrong that they're doing, so they just... I promise to God I'm not preaching to anybody. I'm going somewhere, but I need you to stay with me. And it makes you see very clearly when you look at how we've done marriage that all people want is the pleasure of the marriage. They don't want the Monday morning grind where you got three babies screaming in the house and you still got to go to work and you've been up all night. And it makes you see why churches... Start growing like crazy that tell you don't have to do anything to be saved and you don't have to do anything to stay saved. Y'all, I'm not against vision. There was, a, there was a, a season in my life that I think, Brother Stephen, I could have said, I think I'd read almost every church growth book there was on the market. But I started noticing trends. Listen to pastor. We think it felt so weird to us to go 53 days without gathering and having to watch church on video. And Bishop and I were talking to a businessman in this community the other day that left their local church and joined one that they don't ever see their pastor preach. They have a worship service and they're a satellite campus and their pastor preaches on video Every service. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a good idea. I'm going to get me a mountain, a mountain cabin in Montana and just preach in my jammies. And if they just keep the camera above my waist, you'll never know I'm in my jammies. I'll put me on a dress shirt and a tie and my pajama britches. Have on my camouflage shoes and you won't even know I got them on. <laughs> I know y'all have had to see that during COVID. These people getting halfway dressed for their Zoom meetings. It's, it's, it's crazy. And what we don't realize is how it's slowly massaging our minds and conditioning our minds. 
He said, if, he said, well, at first, you know, I really thought I'm not going to like this video satellite campus, but it's not that bad. And I'm like, dude, why in the world would you be somewhere that's not that bad? There's never pressure to change. Oh, man, I wish I could get about a half dozen people to just say amen right now. There's no pressure to live right. There's no pressure to do it. Just come watch the video and jump online and pay your tithe like it's a monthly bill. Come to our little coffee shop that's going to give money to well diggers and missions places. And praise God, we did the will of God. And all of a sudden you realize why the Lord likened it to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the church. He said, I'm coming back for a bride that's without spot or blemish but here's the deal I want you to understand we're not married yet we're betrothed and he expects us to be as loyal to him in betrothal as we will be after the marriage supper of the lamb in bible days you didn't prove your faithfulness to your spouse after you got married you You proved it to them. Here's the language, and I've got to hurry. I didn't mean to stay here this long. But when you would get engaged and the husband would leave to go build the house, and he would say, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Does that sound familiar? And the the, the groom would go away, and he would build the home and prepare the place and get it ready. And then he would come back in an hour, which no one knew. And Jesus tells the story with ten virgins. He would come back in the midnight hour and he would get his bride. And then they would go into the chamber and they would, uh, they, they would consummate that marriage. And then they would go live together. But she had to prove to him that she could be faithful while he was gone. She had to prove that he was valuable enough to her. That she could be loyal to him while she did not see his face. I feel like God is reaching down to the 21st century church and he's looking at us and saying, quit trying to get the flies out of the oil. I want you to start over again. Oh God. Things that we can't, we can't tell they were there. I wonder if it ever crossed Eliezer's mind. You know what? If I just take this out right now, my father will never know that it was there. And I think that's what's created the problem is that we've done so many things in secret that we don't think anybody will know, so we just remove it. Oh, God. Man, I wish y'all could feel the weight that's on me tonight. And everything that we touch with that anointing, it's affected Because of how we handled it when nobody was looking. And the Holy Ghost is calling us back. And saying you're not going to get this through a program. 
You're not going to get this just because you give more. You're not going to get this because you have more revival meetings. I need somebody to come back to a prayer closet, to intimacy with God, to pray and not when you're just together, but when there's nobody around. I want you coming back to fasting. I want you to coming back to pure anointing. Church, I'm calling you tonight. I am reaching for you to help me. I'm telling you, if we're going to have revival in the 21st century, we're going to have to grind it out. We're going to have to stay on our faces. We're going to have to stay pushed away from the table. We're going to have to conquer our flesh. We're going to have to keep things out of the oil or it's going to affect the body. I'm I'm closing. I've preached enough today for two weekends put together. But I'm carrying something into this pulpit tonight that I can't just come up here and preach pretty to you and walk away. Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 and 25. I'm going somewhere with this right now. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son. Bring them up into Mount Or. Go ahead. Watch this. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eleazar, his son. Of all the sons of Aaron, the one that got the priestly garment at Aaron's death. How many of you have read the story in Psalms? You said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And he said, it's like the oil that ran down whose beard? Oh. Do you know why Eliezer got the priest's garment? Because all of the anointing that had been on Aaron had been protected by Eliezer. And this is the part that generations don't even think about. Listen to pastor. Young people, hear me tonight. When Eliezer put on his father's garments, all of the anointing that was in his garment was the anointing that he had protected. Never knowing that he would wear the garment that was saturated with it. What I'm afraid of is the things that we let come into the anointing right now that someday you may have to wear the garment that's saturated with that. And at that point, you're going to need something that's holy and righteous before God. And you're going to have to look at Aaron and say, Dad, I don't want to put that on. I really don't want to put that on because I know what was in that oil before it came on there. Listen, I'm tired of us throwing the ball in God's court saying, if he wants me bad enough, he'll just honor what I bring him. Absolutely not. God deserves my very best. He deserves the purest anointing that I can bring him. He deserves... God, he deserves my best. The generational handoff. Now we see, Brother Joe, this wasn't just about the tabernacle. This was about the generational handoff from Aaron to Eleazar. And the next generation would wear the anointing of the previous generation. 
and that anointing would become greater. But Eliezer could go to another young man at some point. We don't find the record of the scripture. But when he puts on the priest's garment, then he can go to another young man and say, I want you to smell this right here. The reason why this is so pure is because I took care of it. And let me tell you a story, son. If you see a fly anywhere close to it, keep it away. But if one happens to get in there, you let me know immediately because we've got to rectify the problem. I can't afford for my son to have to wear something that you don't Oh God. As we hand things off from generation to generation, I, I almost changed my grandmother's plans this morning. I thought about preaching this tonight and waiting to give the ties away tonight to young men. But she had, she had set them out there, and I thought, man, ain't no sense in upsetting the fruit basket. You know what I mean? And I thought, tonight it would have been incredible if we could have took the ties of the, of the previous generation and brought them up. Now, this may seem crazy to you, okay, so just stay with me. But we need some errands that will ask some difficult questions before they die and before they put a garment on that Eliezer and say, son, do you deserve this? Because you're about to wear what I told you to protect. So I want to be sure. I want you to look me in the eyes right now, Eliezer, and tell me, Father, I protected this while you weren't looking. Woo! I hope we can feel it in here. Listen. Just listen to the heart of your pastor tonight. I don't even want to play games with things that don't look apostolic. I mean, I don't want to play games with them. When people walk into this church, I want them to walk in, even if they're prodigals that have been gone for many, many years, I want them to walk in and say, it still feels like home here. The sad thing is, is I really wonder tonight how many people have just let things go and let things slide. I, I, can't, I, I can't preach to anybody else. Brother Gray, I, God didn't call me to pastor anybody else. I'm just here in Anderson. I'm, but I do, I do have to wonder how many men have sat in their office and had wrestling matches with God and turned over and over in their bed at night and said, you know, I, I don't guess it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's going to hurt anybody. So they start letting it happen in their church. And the next thing they know, their kids have fallen prey to it. Oh, God. I don't think I got that great of a job, Pastor. I'm sick of standing around just swatting flies all the time. I don't think you understand. Someday you may be wearing the anointing that you have not protected. I know this is not a tip, typical Sunday night. But I'm just letting this church know tonight as your pastor. That we've got to continue to wrestle in the spirit. The apostle said it like this. He said, hold fast to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. 
He said, whether it was something that was in the law or something that I've preached to you, hold fast to it because it's made us what we are. I don't ever want people to walk into this church and say, man, I remember when Anderson was a powerhouse. I remember when Anderson was a holy church. I remember when Anderson was a separated church. Oh, no, no, no. I want God to know tonight he can trust us with the anointing while he's away because we have betrothed ourselves to him and we can look him in the eye at the marriage supper of the lamb and say we have been true to you we have loved you we have kept your commandments your office may not feel significant to you right now but you never know if what you're protecting right now will be the anointing that you'll wear someday Even if it's something in your life that you've wrestled with, say, I'm just not sure about that. Just for the sake of your kids, for the sake of your children, for the sake of the young people in this church that are watching you. If you don't, you may not even have children, but people are watching you. And I want to tell you, if you're wrestling with it and it takes you away from what you've always known to be apostolic truth, declare that it's over. I'm not wrestling with it anymore. Because I don't want my kids wearing something that I have allowed flies to cause that anointing oil to become stagnated and, and have death. And oh God, let us raise up a generation of men that will say, I'm not going to let my kids live it while I watch them live it. I'm going to live it before them. <laughs>